1: Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. That's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access. It's open to all children, teachers, cleaners, administrators, you name it, anyone who is associated with a public school has the right of entry as a citizen or the child of a citizen. Our public schools should be public in ownership and control and they're the only ones that should be publicly funded because they're the only ones that can be publicly accountable. These days we have in our media case after case of corruption when education is privatised. And our governments should be responsible as well as representative members of our community, of our parliament, and they should make sure that there is the provision of a first-rate public education for every child of this country. These things have been fought for in the past and they need to be fought for again. And uh, people, of course, are very concerned about what is going to happen in that home of public education and also that home of separation of religion from the state, namely the United States of America, given the recent developments politically in that country. We have a website at www.adogs.info and our press release 681 attempts to deal with the vice president. Let's forget about Mr Trump for a moment. Uh, The news from the Hindustani Times and others is that uh, the Trump presidency is uh, entering chaos uh, as he tries to get a transition uh, team together. But the person in charge of his transition, transition team, the person who people think might be able to run the country is a man called Michael Pence. So dogs have done their homework and they're here in Press Release 681 to talk about Michael Pence. Michael Pence's Vice Presidency, what does it mean for public education? Now, this following information was in part obtained from the Voice of Reason, the Journal of Americans for Religious Liberty, which is... uh, Uh, Well, the person who is the editor of the journal is a gentleman called Ed Durr, a man who the dogs have been in communication with for years and years. Governor Mike Pence of Indiana is the Vice President-elect for the nation's second highest office. Who is he and what is his view on public education? This man, Pence barely won the governorship of Indiana in 2012 by three percentage points, and he's been a controversial governor whose re-election has always been uncertain. But he's popular amongst evangelicals whose faith he shares, and he's tried to advance his beliefs through public policies. So he's certainly not a separation of religion from the state man. But where does he stand on public education? Listeners, Pence will be a disaster for public education. He signed the most expansive school voucher law in the country, funnelling millions of public dollars to private, mostly church-run schools. He pushed through the most significant increase in charter school funding in years, according to education reporter Alison Klein. As a congressman from 2000 to 2012, Pence voted against the No Child Left Behind Act and as Governor of Indiana, he ended Common Core. And his was the first state to do so. His privatisation policies, however, will meet opposition in many states. For when public goes private, what happens? Diana Ravitch and others have both opinions and evidence on this, And the policy, the privatisation policy in America is highly controversial, as it is here in Australia. So we'll be talking uh, in depth about what happens when public goes private in America shortly. But let's have a look at Pence and separation of religion from the state. Pence is also a disaster for separation of religion in the state. He advocated and signed a so-called religious liberty law that would have permitted discrimination against the gay community and he threatened to create widespread business and corporate exits from the state. He reluctantly signed a modification that pleased no one. Now, Pence has been a 6 term congressman who's been noted for his rigid anti-choice positions on abortion and far-right views that were Tea Party, long before the Tea Party movement began in 2010, and he unsuccessfully challenged John Bomer for the Republican House leader in 2006. As Governor, he worked very hard to make abortion nearly unavailable, restricting access where possible. And this spring, Pence signed into law one of the strictest abortion laws in the nation. Indiana is now the second state in the nation to ban abortions when the fetus has a disability, a law that's likely to be challenged in court. He was defeated for Congress in 1988 and 1990, but he was elected finally in 2000 and served six terms before he narrowly won the governorship in 2012. So he's been around in politics for a few decades. In Congress, Roll Call said that he had a reputation as a culture warrior that was unsullied, opposing federal funding on embryonic stem cell research, supporting a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage, and he supported a cut-off of federal funding for Planned Parenthood. Before his election, he spent the 1990s honing his skills as a conservative radio talk show host and president of a think tank, the Indiana Policy Review. Pence's view on religion and politics have changed dramatically in the 1980s and 1990s. He was actually raised an Irish Catholic Democratic family that idolised JFK. He passed his first vote for Jimmy Carter in 1980, but he soon drifted to the right in both areas of his life. Once he was an observant Catholic and even a youth minister, but he turned evangelical Protestant in college and law school and he persisted in calling himself an evangelical Catholic until the 1990s when he and his wife officially affiliated with an evangelical church and they now attend, guess what, an Indianapolis mega church church. So you've got your uh, Hillsong-type person. Personal religious change is actually not uncommon in America, especially among Catholics. And recent surveys suggest that former Catholics may be the second largest group in American religious life, though most are unaffiliated rather than going over to the evangelical group. Uh, Let's call them more the Assemblies of God-type group. Pence would be the first ex-Catholic to become a vice president or even a potential president. And this could cause problems in the uneasy relationship between evangelicals and conservative Catholics, but religious change is so widespread and accepted in America at the moment that it may prove irrelevant. It will certainly prove irrelevant when the charter school movement gets going because Uh, The charter schools don't even pretend to be religious. They're just there to make a quick buck out of insecure parents. Now, uh, I promised you something from America, their thoughts on what happens when you privatise public institutions. Listeners, how, how much do we have evidence of this here in Australia. We've seen what's happened when we've privatised our prisons. We've seen what's happened when we've privatised our children, when we've actually let out our children as Four Corners and um, 7.30 have showed us this week. We let them out for a quick buck for people to make money out of them and we don't even have them in foster homes anymore. We just put them in houses that are run by people for profit so that they can be abused and used. Uh, What kind of a society have we become when our children are just there for a quick buck? And that, of course, is the mentality of the charter school movement. Now, um, the New York Times recently published a series of articles about the dangers of privatising public service, the first of which was called When You Dial 9-11, I think that would be triple O, and Wall Street Answers. Over the years, the Times has published other exposés of privatised services like hospitals, health care, prisons, ambulances and preschools for children with disabilities. In some cities and states, even libraries and water have been privatised. Well, here in Australia, we know all about this since the Kennett years. Uh, Kennet, of course, was going to completely privatise our water back in 1999. And it was only because there was a change of government that that didn't happen. As it is, Victoria's water is half privatised anyway. Uh, so... No public service is immune from takeover by corporations that say that they can provide comparable or better quality at a lower cost. The New York... Well, we haven't found that, have we, listeners? I haven't noticed the cost of services going down in the last ten, twenty years. The New York Times said that since the 2008 financial crisis, private equity firms have increasingly taken over a wide array of civic and financial services that are central To American life. And Australia is in the same kind of takeover mode because there's a lot of spare capital wandering around the world looking for a place to park and make money. And um, our Prime Minister, of course, wants to make sure that these corporations pay the minimum tax so that they will bring their money to Australia and privatise our services. Privatisation means that a public service is taken over by a for-profit business, whose highest goal is profit. Investors expect a profit when a business moves into a new venture, and the new corporation operating a hospital or a school or a prison or the fire department cuts costs by every means to increase profits. When possible, it eliminates unions, raises prices to consumers, even charging homeowners for putting out fires cuts workers' benefits, expands working hours and lays off veteran employees who earn the most. And perhaps we could add there that it brings in contractors who bring in almost slave labour from overseas. The consequences can be dangerous to ordinary citizens and doctors in privatised hospitals may perform unnecessary surgeries to increase revenues or avoid treating patients whose care may be too expensive. The Federal Bureau of Prisons recently concluded that privatised prisons were not as safe as those run by the Bureau itself and were less likely to provide effective programs for education and job training to reduce recidivism. For the past 15 years, however, America's public schools have been the prime target for privatisation. Unknown to the public, those who would privatise the public schools call themselves reformers to disguise their goal. Who could be opposed to reform? I think Mr. Birmingham and Mr. Pine, here, listeners, with their independent public schools. These days, those who call themselves education reformers are likely to be hedge fund managers entrepreneurs and billionaires, not educators. The reform movement loudly proclaims the failure of American public education and seeks to turn public dollars over to entrepreneurs, corporate chains, mum and pop operations, religious organisations and almost anyone else who wants to open a school. Well, here in Australia, of course, we've known about this since the word go, but it's been mainly the religious education, religious educators or religious organisations that have wanted to privatise and they have been the camel in the tent uh, in the last 50 years that now um, makes it quite legitimate for charter schools and for-profit organisations to take over the education of our children from birth to death. In early September... Donald Trump declared his commitment to privatisation of the nation's public schools. He held a press conference at a low-performing charter school in Cleveland run by a for-profit entrepreneur. And he announced when he was there that if elected president, he would turn $20 billion in existing federal education expenditures into a block grant to states which they could use for vouchers for religious schools, charter schools, private schools or public schools. Now these are the funds that currently subsidise public schools, that enrol large numbers of poor students. So like most Republicans, Trump believes that school choice and competition produce better education, even though there's absolutely no evidence for this belief. In fact, quite the contrary. So as President, Trump will encourage competition among public and private providers of education, which will reduce funding for public schools. No high-performing nation in the world has privatised its schools, So how will Mr Trump make America great again when he is deforming its public system? Well, the motives for privatisation are obvious and, pri- and various. Some privatisers as the dogs have discovered, have an ideological commitment to free market capitalism and they decry public schools as government schools, hobbled by unions and bureaucracy. Well, of course, the unions and the bureaucracy in the past have protected our public schools and they've been thoroughly undermined in the last 50 years. Some are certain that schools need to be run like businesses and that people with business experience can manage schools far better than educators. Others have just a downright profit motive and they hope to make money in the, quote, education industry. Now, the adherents of this business approach, of course, oppose unions and tenure. They prefer employees without any adequate job protection and merit paid pay tied to test scores. and they're finding, of course, that well-qualified teachers are going off into other jobs. They're not going to put up with this kind of treatment. So what kind of teachers are they going to find to teach our children? They never say, we want to privatise public schools. They say, we want to save poor children from failing schools. Therefore, we must open privately managed charter schools to give children a choice. And we must provide vouchers so that poor families can escape the public schools. Now this privatisation movement has got a very powerful lobby to advance its cause. Most of those who support it are political conservatives and right-wing think tanks regularly produce glowing accounts of charter schools and vouchers along with glowing reports about their success. And there's a question mark behind a lot of their research. Now, if the privatisation movement were confined to Republicans, there might be a vigorous political debate about the wisdom of privatising the nation's public schools, but the Obama administration has just been as enthusiastic. And in fact, Obama himself sent his children to a charter school. The charter schools themselves often call themselves public charter schools, that when they've been challenged in federal or state court or before the National Labor Relations Board, charter corporations insist that they are private contractors, not state actors like public schools, and therefore are not bound to follow the state laws. And as private corporations, they're exempt from state labor laws and from state laws that govern disciplinary policies. About 93% of charter schools are non-union, as are virtually all voucher schools. And in most charter schools, and I think this is a very important sentence, young teachers work 50, 60 or 70 hours a week. Teacher turnover is high given the hours and the intensity of the work. Now, in addition to spending on political campaigns, some of the billionaires who have been promoting these charter schools have used their philanthropies to increase their number. There is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There's the Walton Family Foundation and the Edith and Eli Broad Foundation. And they've also, these charters have received donations from the Bloomberg Family Foundation, the Susan and Michael Dell Foundation, the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, the Fisher Family Foundation, and Reed Hastings from Netflix, Jonathan Sackler from Purdue Pharmaceutical, and other families. Eli Broad is financing a program to put half the students in Los Angeles, the nation's second biggest school district, into privately managed charters. So this is big money and this is ideologically run and there's a lot of money involved. Now we're going to stop talking about charters for the moment and we can tell you all about them at another time because we're going to go and have a chat to Robert. But first of all, we'll give you a lovely piece of music, a trumpet from Atalanta by Handel. And here it is. Well, welcome, uh, Robert. We've just been talking about um, Vice President Pence and America, but what would you like to to talk to our listeners about? Oh,
2: look, I think we here at the Dogs have to address this question because it sort of poses so many questions. It's not just the one. It's like, oh, what on earth is going to happen? I'm I'm not sure if you covered um, who he's likely to be creating. his education secretary. But he certainly, uh, Mr Trump, has some ideas about um, um, getting rid of the education department. He thinks it's superfluous.
1: Yes, there's quite a lot on Diana Ravitch's um, uh, blog about who might be the new secretary, but I'm not sure that they're they're certain about that yet.
2: I don't think they are either. Um, No, the, the, the question, I mean, it's all very well to go around wearing safety pins. Um, to protest against Donald Trump, but now I really just think it's the time people have to fight in yeah. the United States if they want to have an education system. It's, you can't just sort of sit there and do Facebook posts and whinge about it. You've got to get out and actually mm. do something about it because it's time to fight. As we the dogs so well know, um, well, Jean. If it's all right with you, I'd like to talk about this new strange idea. It's a, it's, it's a new phrase that's been put into the Oxford English Dictionary. Yes, I
1: saw it on on the TV last night. Yes, post post truth.
2: truth, Um, And when combined with the idea of politics, um, it relates to the idea that what people feel about things when it comes to making decisions for a nation or electing politicians in a democracy, what people feel about things is in fact functionally and practically much more important than what people know about things. Um, And so therefore you can go around and say whatever you like, whether it's true or not. Um, and everyone will go, well, that feels about right, and you can get elected on that basis.
1: That's very interesting because it really should be post-defamation, shouldn't it, too? I've never necessarily been in favour of defamation laws, but, um, yes, I I see what you mean. Yeah, well, I mean,
2: they just say things that are are untrue, and and, and everyone goes, well, that feels about right, or... Well, maybe it, um, whatever's been said um, confirms your own prejudices.:
1: Yes, I like realize. the feel you know, of that
2: hmm. yeah, I mean I like the feel of that that sounds about right. Yes, atheist people have no morals, and, and black people, for instance, you know uh, have greater tendencies to crime. People can go around saying things like that.
1: All Mexicans and, um, are what rapists oh, yes. or,
2: or whatever it is or women or, or something like that. You can just go around saying things like that, and everyone goes, "Well that feels about." That. Whereas in fact the facts contradict whatever it is you are saying, but the facts are less important than the fact that, the facts are less important um, than the feelings that are inspired and, and the um, and the prejudices or, or worldviews that are reinforced. The reason I'm mentioning it, Jane, is that um, I actually don't think it's, it's the right word, because people talk about post-truth politics, but people forget about what, what I would call pre-truth politics. Um, There was a time, and um, it's been in my lifetime, where if someone gets up and lies to you as a politician and is found out, um, there are political consequences. But two or three hundred years ago, um, or even in the age of absolute monarchy and before that, indeed, before the Enlightenment, um, uh, it was pre-truth politics. I mean, there, there was no sense of um, encouraging people to say anything that was true to maintain power. Truth was irrelevant to power, or truth is irrelevant to power in an absolute monarchy. Truth is irrelevant to power in a dictatorship. Truth is irrelevant to power if you're, if you're perhaps talking about um, you know, the hegemony of, of, of some very dominant religious sect in one, one form or another. Well, of course, truth, once you put truth, the
1: religion... Truth has no
2: relevance. Uh, to power in in, in vast tracts of history. Um, And I think, when people talk about post-truth politics, we're just perhaps returning (laughs) to something that existed previously, something that existed before the Enlightenment, where it was thought that truth, or the pursuit of truth, um, was a powerful weapon in the the advancement of mankind. Um, I think in the context of of the election in the United States, um, I just think it's extremely likely that probably for the first time in many generations, um, the next generation is going to be less well-educated than the one before it. And the sad thing is that this seems to be a deliberate act
1: Yes. Um, of course, in the 19th century, they thought that they might have to educate their masters when they got the vote. But now they've worked out how to do when people, or what to do when people actually do have the vote. Uh, they they manipulate their emotions. But um, if you put what you're saying together with religion, uh, and you have blasphemy laws... Uh, you've got problems too. We, we have in this country and probably in America too a much more subtle kind of blasphemy law. Uh, you'll see it in the, uh, in the financial review this week where Mr Shorten is not even allowed to mention the idea of protectionism. He'll be accused of following Trump. Although all he's doing is uh, trying to protect the jobs of uh, blue-collar workers in Australia, who have been put into our very own rust bucket uh, in this country, Uh, so they.
2: Oh yes, I mean uh, the the industrialisation of Australia is—it's just—it's just just progressive. It's manifested. It's happened in half a generation, and so you are going to have just disaffection that relates to that. What I really wanted to talk about um, was this concept of post-truth and perhaps pre-truth in the context of educational policy. Yeah. Because it seems when people want to discuss about what's good and bad in education, um, the truth doesn't matter. Um, what feels right matters. You know, the, the, whole, the whole principle of funding education using vouchers or, in the Australian context, you know, funding education based on need or whatever, whatever it is they call the Gomsky model, um, there is no evidence to suggest, I mean, there is no fact, there is no truth in what these people are saying about the benefits of it, because it feels right. Um, everyone goes, oh, well that that, well, that that sounds about right, so we'll do that. But um, the evidence is just, even among academics, circles, I have to admit, it's just not examined anymore. We're sort of in a post-truth educational policy vacuum, and we have been for some time, haven't we, Jean?
1: I suppose because I've been around quite a long time, I'd I'd go back to the 1960s where there was a lot of emphasis upon um, emotions, particularly uh, when people were looking at things like literature and you had the rise of postmodernism and all that really uh, was regarded as being truthful were what people felt when they read um, a poem, even though... um, When I grew up, what you had to do was to try to understand what it was that the poet was trying to say. So the whole uh, idea that somehow emotions were more truthful and more important than getting to the um, answer to a problem or asking the right questions or keeping on asking questions um, was uh, downgraded. Now, it wasn't downgraded to quite the same extent in the um, field of science, but it certainly was in the area of literature. And uh, there were also questions that you weren't supposed to ask historically as well uh, in the academic field. Um, I noticed this more in Melbourne than I did in Sydney, and it wasn't too good in Queensland either. But um, the... the um, The universities, uh, the old school tie became more prominent, I felt, once uh, after the 1960s. And uh, it's been the same, I think, in in the business world as well. However, business people at the end of the day do have to have some facts and figures. And that's why the financial review can sometimes give you some very interesting um, information, uh, particularly on the TAFE sector and so on. So you have to go to looking, the Robert. cultural shift. Yeah, you, know, you do have to go we're, looking. We're,
2: talk, we're talking about cultural shifts and, and, and the primacy of um, feelings over, over thought. But um, when it comes to you know, developing effective educational policy that creates stable society over generations, um, there have been some models where it's kind of worked, and Australia is one of them, and we need to get back to it. I mean, also, if you talk about the financial view, you, you talk about things like privatising the TAFE sector.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, Birmingham came out three weeks ago and said, Private education colleges cost three times as much as publicly run one. Yep. And his solution was then to try and tighten up on private education colleges. No, the solution is to, pri- is, 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 is to nationalise the process and make it all public so it will therefore be cheaper and better and more elega- egalitarian and create a fair go. But Birmingham, in this post-truth world, um, just you know, just keeps along the strange privatisation line. It doesn't matter how much it costs.
1: But anyway, Jane, I've had
2: my ranch now.
1: Well, it's the market that's laid up in heaven. But in fact, there is a lot of questioning of the um, free trade uh, agreements and what have you, and uh, uh, the elites. um, And who are the elites? Uh, that is a question that uh, they've been asking, but the people I call the elites are the people who have power to make decisions. They are actually getting a bit concerned, I think, up there in their little uh, ivory towers, that the natives are getting restless, and uh, their policies well, they are have. failing. They have. Yeah. So here, anyway, at 3CR, I... here at 3CR, we had the luxury of getting to the facts and figures and not being part of this post-truth world. So thank you, Robert, for um, reminding us of how, how lucky we are, you and I, to be here at 3CR discussing these matters.
2: Yes, freely. Freely. Discussing them freely at yes. 3CR. So yes. Whatever else you can like. We can jump up and down and whinge about Australian politics. At least we can do that. Anyway, Jean, I have to go, um, do do some more research, but I'll speak to you again next week.
1: Bye. Bye. Strawberries, cherries and an angel's kiss in spring. My summer wine is really made from all the... We are so lucky at 3CR, artist and winemaker extraordinaire Luke Lambert has given us some wine to share with you. It's $15, folks. That's a major bargain. There's Shiraz, Chardonnay and Rosé, and you can drink it all summer long and toast 3CR. Call us on
0: 9419
1: 8377, or you can go to the 3CR website and look for the 3CR shop. Cool, that sounds easy. So, are we posting it out? No, you've got to come into the station. Just make sure you come in before the 23rd of December. Awesome! It's going to be perfect for those hot summer days. Strawberries,
3: cherries, and an angel's
1: Luke Lambert is a 3CR supporter.
0: Public Interest Before Corporate Interests Action Group. Why is it so difficult to find a home? To pay rent, pay mortgage. Why is it so difficult to afford childcare? Get a decent education for the kids. Have so much trouble gaining access to public hospitals and healthcare. Finding a job, let alone a secure, well-paid one. To be able to pay for gas and power bills, or even put food on the table. Remember when we could do all of this on one wage and an eight-hour day. We invented and built, discovered and taught. We made ships, planes and cars. We were among the world first in social, health, scientific and arts initiatives. Alas, no more. The three big parties are funded by corporates and therefore dependent and cannot honestly represent public interest. We are looking for like-minded people who would be interested in making significant actions to inhibit corporate power by pressuring politicians, writing public petitions, initiating public forums to inform and also give people a voice, organising demonstrations, standing a political candidate, investigative journalism and corporate vulnerability analysis. Contact PIBSI, www.pibci.net, www.pibci.net. PIBCI.net. Email info at PIBCI.net. PIBCI.net. Phone 0439 489. PO Box 20 Parkville, Victoria 3052. Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. If you would like to help put public interest before corporate interest, contact Pibci.
1: Well, after that chat with Robert, let's get to some facts and figures. They can be a bit boring, I know, but um, facts and figures sometimes bring us up with a start as to the reality. I've always been a great believer in following the money, not the rhetoric. Mm. Uh, there's plenty of rhetoric and our in these post-truth times, it seems that our Our politicians believe that they can just speak untruths and we will believe them. Our problem is, of course, that we know that there's something wrong, but unless we get to the facts and figures, we can't say why. Now, there is a gentleman called Jim McMorrow who has produced a very interesting paper called The Precarious State of Schools Funding in Australia Following the 2016 Federal Election. Now, Jim McMorrow has a very interesting uh, history. He's been around for quite some time. He started off in the Catholic Education Office, then he went to the Schools Commission for a while, as my memory serves me, and he ended up in the New South Wales Education Department. But he's a facts and figures man, and um, he has pride in getting it right. This uh, paper that he has written, because I... He's held a number of strategic policy positions at national and state levels, including Deputy Director-General, New South Wales Department of Education and Training, Director of Policy and Planning in the former New South Wales Ministry of Education, and First Assistant Commissioner of the Commonwealth Schools Commission. So um, he's been around for some time, and he knows all about facts and figures, and uh, He's written this paper and he introduces it as follows. The re-election of the Turnbull government in July 2016 confirms the uncertain and troubling state of public policy for the funding of schools in Australia. The Coalition had very little to say about its schools funding policy during the election campaign. And the state school vote, of course, almost brought Turnbull down. Uh, The Budget, however, has confirmed that the Coalition Government has abandoned the national goal of enabling all schools to reach the recurrent resource standards recommended by the Gonski Review and set out in the Australian Education Act. Whatever the many shortfalls of inequalities in their funding at the end of 2017, schools have been served notice that a Coalition Government in Canberra has no plan to deal with them after that date. As far as the Coalition is concerned, schools operating at resource levels below their Gonski standard will just have to soldier on. Even the Budget's headline announcement, $1.2 billion extra for schools, is disingenuous. This $1.2 billion has been allocated for over four years from 2017-18 to 2020-21 to provide enhanced indexation of Commonwealth recurrent funding for schools over the calendar year's 2018 to 2020. So the government has moved away from the Abbott government's decision to link funding levels after 2017 in all schools and systems to changes in the consumer price index, when that was projected at around 2.5% per annum, and it's replaced it with a new education sector-specific index of 3.56%. Now, recurrent spending in schools is essentially directed to teacher and non-teacher salaries, with a smaller proportion provided for non-salary educational items. The Budget Papers project wages growth of 3 to 3.5 per cent per annum for the period after 2017-18, an enrolment growth of over 1 per cent. And this suggests that the Commonwealth's additional $1.2 billion over four years effectively adjusts its per-student grants to offset the effects of inflation in schools. So having abandoned Gonski and the recurrent resource standards set out in the Australian Education Act, the Government's decision to index grants annually by 3.56% after 2017 effectively freezes the Commonwealth's contribution at the 2017 school year in real terms. Had the Coalition not allowed in the budget for indexation to reflect education expenses, it would have been announcing a progressive cut in Commonwealth funding to schools from 2018 on in real terms. So having repudiated any obligation for the fifth and sixth years of needs-based funding increases linked to the achievement of resources standards, the Commonwealth Minister has declared that the additional $1.2 billion for indexation from 2018 to 2020 will be tied to a needs-based distribution of funding and reforms in our schools to help every parent have confidence that their, quote, child is receiving the teaching they require. That's a quote. Post-truth quote. What this means is that the Commonwealth expects any redistribution of its funding to better reflect student need to be affected by government and perhaps non-government system authorities because the Commonwealth funding after 2017 will effectively be adjusted only for education-specific costs. It implies that some schools within systems would need a funding cut to enable increases to flow to needier schools. So it's passing the buck down the line to the state governments for public schools. Of course, there's no way that such a redistribution can apply across different schools within non-systemic independent school sectors where the least and the best resource schools would receive the same rate of indexation. So the wealthy schools shouldn't be worried by any of this. Note that at this stage, the Commonwealth Minister has not announced whether differential indexation would apply to schools operating above the National Resource Standard as set out in Section 60 of the Australian Education Act of 2013. Now, non-government schools will also re- receive the greatest share of this additional $1.2 billion. So based on projected enrolment and funding shares between the sectors, non-government schools can expect to receive around $750 million with the remaining $450 million, or 38% allocated to public schools. So it's very much business as usual at the Commonwealth Coalition level. 60%, two thirds of our children attend public schools and they will get 38% of the Commonwealth funds. So the budget papers provide more detailed information on the Commonwealth's funding commitments to the 2019-20 financial year and the budget summary table for schools um, is outlined below. So all of this information is in this very meaty paper that has been produced by Jill McMorrow and you can find it on the Save Our Schools website and also I believe on our website when we update it. So i just like to also refer you to the Save Our Schools website to have a look at uh, Trevor Cobald's paper on school autonomy in England, which has failed to unleash greatness. The UK government promised to unleash greatness in English schools. Well, this is where Mr Trump got his America will be great again. With its radical school autonomy plan to convert all schools to independent academies. This is where some kind of strange ideology of belief in the market produces greatness. It produces billionaires who don't pay their taxes. That's all I know. A new comprehensive review of the experience with academies shows the plan's failing. So there's been a review which has actually produced some information Now, this review concludes that academies are an imperfect way to address the challenges faced by struggling schools and their students and that school autonomy has clear limits as a school reform strategy. Academy schools in England have autonomy in matters such as admissions, so they can refuse children, they can refuse parents, they can refuse teachers. They also have autonomy in hiring teachers, curriculum and salaries. Each academy is established, listen to this, as a charitable trust. So education is a charity, but you choose, you can choose who you give charity to. And it's funded by, and it's directly responsible to, the UK Secretary of State. So public money to charitable institutions to, in their charity, and no doubt for profit as well, they might educate the children of the country. Now, there are two types of academies. There are sponsored academies which were introduced by the previous Labor government and were limited to struggling secondary schools. And then converter academies were introduced by the UK Coalition government and expanded the academy option at both the secondary and the primary levels and all schools were invited to convert to academy status. So it's a privatisation program. Now, in addition, the government promoted a new type of school, free schools that would be established from scratch to meet the perceived needs of ethnic minorities and other groups that wanted their own schools. So it's it's also a policy of segregation. You separate out the poor from the middle class And you separate out ethnic minorities so that they can teach their own culture and forget about multiculturalism and us all living together. They can all be separate. And then they can be quite legitimately called the other. Now... An education white paper issued by the UK government earlier this year proposed to increase the number of academies to 20,000 and its rationale is similar to that for the establishment of independent public schools in Australia. Now, Trevor Cobald says that he believes and we're not disagreeing with him here at the Dogs, that the fastest and most unsustainable way for schools to improve is for the government to trust this country's most effective education leaders, giving them freedom and power and holding them to account for unapologetically high standards for every child measured rigorously and fairly. And of course, the most effective education leaders are not in the private sector. They are in the public sector. Uh, they are the teachers and the principals who have run successful schools in the public sy- in the public system, on a tow rag, by the way, and um, they are the people who are in the education departments who have come in from the schools. So uh, I think that we're very grateful to Trevor Coble for all of his work, and we recommend that you read the full paper because our time has gone. And uh, we would like to thank you for letting us into your kitchen or your dining rooms or wherever your uh, radio is uh, this afternoon. And we hope that you will keep listening to 3CR and we will be back at midday next Saturday. So bye for now.
4: dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, he are ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In so Lake City, Joe, says I. am standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but i did dead. Says Joe, but i dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I Every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there. Joe, you're ten years dead.